Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Well, we are beginning a study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and as part of the introduction to the book... I want us to look at Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. In the book of Acts, Luke provides us with a more extensive coverage of Paul's ministry in Ephesus than in many other places. But his account still only gives us insight into some of the key events that took place during Paul's lengthy stay. But what Luke does choose to tell us is very helpful for understanding the background and beliefs that the worldview of the people who became Christians and comprised the churches of Ephesus. And so I want to do what I want to do this morning and next Sunday as well is look at Acts chapter 19 and Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. So turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 19. We're not going to read the text this morning because it's quite lengthy. We'll just read it as we go along. So Acts chapter 19, but let me set the context for chapter 19. Paul, after setting out on his uh, second missionary journey, tried to go to Asia and no doubt Ephesus, but we know the Holy Spirit forbid him to speak the word in Asia, directing him instead to Troas and then on to Macedonia and Greece, ending up in Corinth where he met Aquila and Priscilla. And then after 18 months of ministry in the city of Corinth, Paul, along with Priscilla and Aquila, set sail for Syria, for Antioch and Syria, Paul's home base. And it was on the way home from this second missionary journey that Paul first stopped very briefly in Ephesus. And we read in Acts chapter 18, verses 19 and 21, and they came to Ephesus, speaking of Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. During his brief initial a visit in Ephesus, Paul entered the synagogue and, and reasoned with the Jews. Some of them asked him to stay longer, but this was impossible. He had to return to his home base in Antioch and report back to the church that had sent him on his mission. But the Jewish husband and wife team uh, he had lived with and worked with in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila, who shared Paul's tent-making trade, they stayed on at Ephesus after Paul set sail. And we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 22, and when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And this brought Paul's second missionary journey to an end. And then after some time in Antioch, 
Paul set off on his third missionary journey. And we read in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, after spending some time there, speaking of Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so he went back to the churches that he had founded on his first journey, which many would have visited, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. I mean, these young churches needed to be strengthened. And so Paul went back to, to each church, strengthening and encouraging the believers from the Word of God. And after traveling through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, Paul then set his sights on Ephesus. And according to Luke's account in Acts 19 and 20, Paul's ministry in Ephesus was long, three years. But it was also fruitful. And yet, as we'll see, it was not without controversy and conflict. Now, as we begin chapter 19, Paul returns to Ephesus. And in the verses we're going to be looking at this morning, we'll see uh, his ministry there in that city. We'll see, first of all, the disciples he met the teaching he did, the unusual miracles, the imposters, and the impact that it had upon the city. So let's look now at, at verses 1 to 7, where, we'll read, where we will read about the disciples that Paul met, beginning in verse 1, if you'll notice. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. In the last part of chapter 18, when Paul left Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila stayed behind to minister there. And in Paul's absence, they met a man named Apollos, who followed the teaching of John the Baptist, but he didn't know the gospel. And so Priscilla and Aquila took him aside, explained the gospel to him. He received it, believed it, and his life was transformed. Apollos then left Ephesus for Corinth with letters of recommendation, exhorting the believers in Corinth to receive him with open arms. And they did, and, and Apollos was a great help to the believers in Corinth. Because Acts chapter 18 verse 28 tells us, he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And so Apollos took up where Paul left off in Corinth, refuting the Jews, using his newfound knowledge of the gospel to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And verse 1 of chapter 19 tells us that it was while Paul, Apollos was in Corinth that Paul came to Ephesus and there he found some disciples, 12 to be exact, dispersed Jews who were living in Ephesus. But be careful how you read that when it says disciples. It says he found some disciples. It does not say he found some Christians. The word disciple simply means a learner, a pupil, a follower. In the New Testament, it does not always refer to Christians, although we would have to say that every Christian is a disciple of Jesus Christ. But the word disciple simply means a learner, a, a pupil, a follower. I mean, for example, in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, we read, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So this verse speaks of the disciples of John the Baptist and of the disciples of the Pharisees, who certainly were not Christians. I mean, even all the, the disciples of Jesus were not believers. 
For example, in John chapter 6, verse 66, we read, After this, many of his, many of Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I mean, these people called disciples there in John 6 were not Christians. They were simply followers, following Jesus for the miracles and the food. But when they learned the high cost of what it was to be a Christian, when they learned what it was to be a true disciple of Christ, they all left. They were disciples only in the sense that they followed Jesus for a while for what they could get from him, not because they were believers in him as Messiah and Lord. And so the word disciples doesn't always refer to Christians. The context determines whether those referred to as disciples are truly believers or simply followers of someone else. Here in verse 1, the word disciple does not mean these people were Christians. Unfortunately, they, they weren't true disciples of Jesus. Rather, they were 12, what you could call almost Christians. Because we find out that they were disciples of John the Baptist. Their understanding, or should I say lack of understanding, was in some ways like that of Apollos. And they had responded positively to John the Baptist's ministry, at least what of it they had heard. But they only had partial information. I mean, these men needed to be instructed about the person and work of Jesus Christ, the significance of his death, burial, and resurrection. They need to be instructed about uh, the Holy Spirit's role in the, in the, in the birth and the life of the church, the Holy Spirit's uh, baptism and indwelling. And so perhaps it was due to something he observed in their behavior and demeanor, but it's apparent that Paul did not assume these 12 disciples were Christians. Rather, he was uncertain about their condition. So he entered into a conversation with them to determine their spiritual status, to determine where they were in relation to the gospel. Notice verse 2. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Or as another translation has it, the Holy Spirit. Did you receive him as a result of your initial act of faith? Now, why would Paul ask that question? Well, because as he writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, what? Does not belong to him. You see, the moment a person is born again, the Holy Spirit indwells them and baptizes or immerses them into the body of Christ. And so the baptism of the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit are interrelated. The baptism of the Spirit puts me into Christ. The indwelling puts Christ in me. The one makes me a member of Christ's mystical body. The other makes my material body the Holy Spirit's temple. And so if you don't have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not indwelling you. You're not a Christian. You're not saved. It's just that simple. You've never been born again. And so in seeking to determine whether or not these men were truly saved, Paul asked if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And look at their response in, in the rest of verse 2. And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> They didn't know that, that all those who be believe in Christ are 
baptized into him and receive the indwelling spirit. In fact, they said they never even heard there was a Holy Spirit. And so their answer confirmed Paul's suspicions that they were not yet truly believers. And so Paul asked a second question. Look at verse 3. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Well, this was further proof that they were not yet Christians. And I say that because being baptized by John the Baptist demonstrated a recognition of one's sin, a desire for spiritual cleansing, and a commitment to follow God's law in anticipation of the Messiah's arrival. In other words, John's baptism was meant to ready the people's hearts to receive their Savior. I mean, these men believed what John had preached, that the Messiah was about to come and they needed to turn from their sin and in preparation for, for his coming. So they submitted to John's baptism, signifying their recognition of their sin and, and their readiness and willingness to receive the Messiah. The problem was they were still looking for the Messiah. They didn't know that he had already come in the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't realize that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah whom John proclaimed. I mean, evidently they had relocated from Palestine to Ephesus before Jesus' own ministry began, and, and they had never heard of it. So they hadn't heard anything of Jesus' life and ministry, and, and certainly not of his death and resurrection. I mean, what these men had done was good. But there was more they needed to know. The message they had heard from John was incomplete. And therefore, their belief was incomplete. And so what did Paul do? Well, he told them about Christ. Look at verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. Jesus. Paul didn't rebuke them for their lack of knowledge. He didn't belittle them. Instead, he pointed out what they had done, that they had done well by repenting of sin. I mean, John did proclaim a baptism of repentance, but John also proclaimed that they should believe in Jesus who would come after him. And Luke doesn't record it, but certainly at this point, Paul would have explained the basic truths of the gospel to them. And no doubt when he explained to them that Christ had come and about his finished work upon the cross, the light of the truth dawned in their hearts and, and they believed and trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, Because Paul's subsequent action of baptizing them indicates that he accepted them as genuine born-again believers. He would have never baptized an unbeliever. That's why we read in verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they believed. After they believed, they were immediately baptized as a testimony of their spiritual union with Christ by faith. And then we read in verse 6 and 7, notice, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So you read that and you go, well, why did they speak in tongues and prophesy when they received the Holy Spirit? I mean, is this the norm? Well, of course it's not the norm. It's not meant to be normative. 
The speaking with tongues and prophesying here was visible, tangible evidence for themselves and others that, number one, they had indeed received the Holy Spirit. Just as the Jews in Jerusalem had on the day of Pentecost, just as the Samaritans had in Acts chapter 8, and just as the Gentiles did with Peter in Acts chapter 10. One commentator said, this was a mini-Pentecost. We see the Pentecost experience four times in the book of Acts. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem, to the Samaritans through Philip, to the Gentiles by Peter, and here to dispersed Jews through Paul. And in each of these instances, all four of these instances, apostles were present. And why is that important? Well, apostles were present to verify that they all, all of these people, Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile, received the same Holy Spirit in the same way. And the same miraculous gifts were present so that they would all know what was said of the Gentiles in Acts chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. If then God gave the same Spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And all of that to say, the speaking with tongues and prophesying was merely verification that they had, in fact, received the Holy Spirit. And then secondly, this was verification that they, too, were now fully members of the body of Christ, the universal church, along with the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And this is why Paul would write to the the Ephesians in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so when he arrived in Ephesus, Paul, first of all, met 12 dispersed Jews, disciples of John the Baptist, who had never heard the gospel. They had an incomplete belief. And he shared the gospel with them. They were were born again, baptized in water, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, immersed into the body of Christ. These men had, had been baptized previously by John the Baptist. They were seeking to live for God, but something was missing. And we could say their lives had been reformed outwardly, but not inwardly transformed. And there are people just like them in our churches today. People who have outwardly reformed their lives, something that unbelievers are completely capable of. So they've reformed their their outward lives. They've they've given up sinful habits and are living outwardly moral lives. They they may have even been baptized and are seeking to live a better life. You know, they they, they want to do good. They're, they're, They're coming to church and seeking to do all of the right things. But like these 12 disciples that Paul met, Something is missing in their lives. I mean, it's good that someone has given up their sinful habits and and lifestyle. It's good that they're coming to church, but that is not what makes someone a Christian any more than walking into a garage makes you a car. Being a Christian is not merely making some outward changes and being religious and doing religious things. What's missing in the lives of so many is a genuine, real, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
They're religious, but they've never trusted Christ as Lord and Savior. They've changed their outward conduct. And, and really, that's what they major in. You ask them about being a Christian, and they list off all these things they don't do. I mean, they've changed their outward conduct, but their hearts have never been transformed by the power of the gospel. And the only answer to their situation is the same answer Paul gave to these 12 men. They must believe in Christ. Because you see, morality and religion will never and can never save anyone. Those things will never get one person into heaven. If it could then the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees would, would be, they, they'd be there. The only way to heaven is by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, the only way to heaven is by knowing the way. And of course, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. And so oftentimes what is missing in the life of many who attend church is a real personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Churches today are full of outwardly moral religious people who were on their way to an eternal hell. One other point of application before we move on. These men had an incomplete belief because they had, they had heard an incomplete message. And the point I would like to make is simply that when we as Christians share the gospel, we had better make sure we are sharing the whole gospel a complete gospel, because we don't want to be guilty of sharing an incomplete message. And this is a real issue. And I say that because often in an effort to, to, to bring someone to Christ, people will soften up the, the offense of the gospel message because they're afraid of, of offending a person. So there's this tendency then to make it sound much more appealing in a worldly kind of way. Just, just try Jesus. Got Jesus? You know, Jesus is the answer to all of your problems. And they sort of give the impression that you can have most all of what the world has to offer and have Jesus too and, and heaven in the end. You just add Jesus to your life along with everything else and then everything's just going to be all right. Well, that's not the whole message. In fact, that's not even the gospel message. That's not the gospel. The gospel always begins with God. And people must understand that their problems fundamentally are not that they have messed up their own lives or that they haven't realized their full potential, but that they have sinned. Not primarily against themselves or against someone else, but against a holy God by sinning against his holy character and his law. I mean, the Bible says we've all sinned against God. I mean, we are all sinners by nature and by choice, and because of that, we deserve death and separation from God now and forever. And we will experience God's wrath and judgment if we die in our sin. That's the bad news, and if you don't understand that, you will never understand nor appreciate the good news. That's what the gospel begins with. You're a sinner. You've sinned against a holy God. 
He's your creator and your judge, and he's going to send you to an eternal hell if you die in that condition. That's the bad news, and it doesn't get any worse. But the good news is that God in his mercy and grace, because of his great love, sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect sinless life, to die the death that we deserve for our sins. And he died on the cross, taking upon himself our sin and the punishment we deserve. And he satisfied God's justice and wrath so that we, he can now deal with sinners in terms of love and grace rather than in terms of wrath. And therefore, the only saving response to this good news is not to reject the gospel, but rather to obey it. And, and to do that, the Bible says you must repent and believe. The Bible says that you are to repent of your sins and to believe in, trust in, rely upon the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation to God. You see, God is offering forgiveness of sin and eternal life. It's the free gift of His grace. It cannot be bought or, or earned, but it will cost you everything. Because God requires that we turn to Him from sin, give our lives unreservedly to Him. And that means making Him first in our lives and means leaving the old life behind and starting a new life in Christ. And I think you get the point. We must give. It is imperative that we give a complete gospel message and stop trying to get people to respond to something based only on part of the information. Because we wouldn't think of doing that, nor would we stand for that in any other area of life. Would we? Of course we wouldn't. You would never make an important decision based on only partial information. We need to preach a complete gospel. So those are the disciples that, that Paul met. Next, we see the teaching he did in verses 8 to 10. Notice verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I mean, Paul had been in the synagogue in Ephesus on his first uh, visit, and in that brief time, he had established a good relationship with them. In fact, in Acts chapter 18, verse 20, there we read that they asked him to stay for a longer period. Well, when he returned this time to Ephesus, he went right back to the synagogue and, and began teaching again. And for three months, which was a long time compared with other places he had visited, Paul spoke boldly. Literally, he was continuing to speak boldly. And this was a characteristic of apostolic preaching. The content of Paul's preaching was uncompromisingly confrontational. I mean, he didn't hold back anything out of fear of being rejected or out of fear of, of hostility. I mean, there's something to be said for boldness. But that doesn't mean stupid dogmatism when you have no right to be dogmatic. And it doesn't mean riding your hobby horse to the point where everybody is driven crazy with it. It simply means when you have a right to speak the truth, you speak it with boldness and fearlessness. I mean, confidence uh, is the idea. And so for three months, Paul confidently, boldly, fearlessly fired away, preaching the truth. You'll notice it says he was reasoning with them. 
The word reasoning means to dialogue. It speaks of a back-and-forth, question-and-answer type of situation. And so Paul didn't only lecture. He was responding to their questions and challenges. He was reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Persuading means to convince by argument. And so he was seeking to prove and, and convince them of the things concerning the kingdom of God, that is, the things concerning Jesus Christ, salvation, and righteousness. Because the only way a man will ever be in the kingdom of God is through faith in Christ. And so through question and answer, Paul sought to persuade them from the Old Testament scriptures about the kingdom of God, that, that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. And he was doing all that he could to reason and and persuade the Jews to trust Christ alone as their Messiah. And initially, they were very receptive. I mean, some in the synagogue did believe. But as time went on, the attitudes of the unbelievers changed. You see, boldness also creates flack. And flack creates action. Look at the, the, the first part of verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. The Greek word translated here as stubborn means to harden. To harden. And it always refers to defiance against God. Some were persuaded by Paul's reasoning, but some of them became stubborn. In other words, they hardened their hearts to the truth in absolute defiance of God. You see, that's what happens when you continue to reject the truth. Truth rejected leads to a hardened heart. And the longer someone rejects the truth, the harder their heart becomes. You see, people respond to the gospel in one of two ways. They will believe it as the good news, trust Christ and be saved, or they'll reject it and their hearts are hardened. And the next time they reject it, their heart becomes a little more hardened. And this was the response of most of those in the synagogue. They rejected the truth and continued in unbelief. They refused to believe it. It was outright disobedience, defiance. It was an act of hostility and rebellion against God, who the Bible says commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. So you see, the gospel is not just a suggestion. It is a command to be obeyed. And they rejected that in defiance of God. And in the face of undeniable evidence presented by Paul and the power of the Spirit, some Jews in the synagogue at Ephesus hardened their hearts and they absolutely refused to believe. And they were not passive in their unbelief. No, Luke tells us they began to express their unbelief by speaking evil of the way, which was an early title for Christianity. And so they began to slander Christianity publicly as as Paul once did. And they did so in an effort to destroy the church's witness and to destroy Paul's influence. And when this began to happen, Paul knew continuing in the synagogue would be unproductive. And so he decided it was time to locate, relocate someplace else. And look, we read, look at the rest of verse 9. He withdrew from them, he withdrew from the synagogue, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall, or the school of Tyrannus. 
So Paul left the synagogue, taking with him those who had trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, and they began to meet daily in the hall or the school of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know if Tyrannus owned the school or if he was a a philosopher who taught there. But whatever the case may be, it's not exactly a great name. It means our tyrant. Now, it's hard to believe someone would actually name their child our tyrant. It's possible then that (laughs) it's possible that Tyrannus was a nickname. And if he was a teacher there, it's possible that tyrant was a nickname given to him by his students or, or perhaps by his mother. You know, come here, you little tyrant, you know. But it really doesn't matter. All we need to know is that Paul rented the hall from this man named Tyrannus in order to preach and to teach the Word of God. In fact, one Greek manuscript actually says Paul rented Tyrannus' quarters from the fifth hour to the tenth, that is, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And that makes total sense. Because in that part of the world, because of the intense heat, work stopped at 11 a.m. And they would take an extended siesta through the heat and then resume work at 4 p.m., working until about 9.30 or 10 o'clock at night. In fact, one commentator said that you could find more people awake in Ephesus at 1 a.m. than you could at 1 p.m. And so Paul used this to his advantage. And he was able to rent the lecture hall from Tyrannus to preach the gospel and the word of God in the middle of the day. And this this shows us a couple of things. Number one, it shows us the love and concern Paul had for believers, especially new believers. When those in the synagogue began to oppose and slander the gospel and Christianity, Paul took the new believers to meet someplace else. Why? Well, to protect them and to assure their growth in Christ. You see, Paul took very seriously his responsibility to care for the flock of God that had been entrusted to him. And that is why when he left Ephesus, he was able to say to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So we see the love and and concern Paul had for the flock of God. Secondly, we see the drive and commitment Paul had to preach the gospel. I mean, he was committed. When he came to Ephesus, he he was working, making tents. And so in the morning, Paul would work as a tent maker, supporting himself. And then in the heat of the day, when most people were taking a siesta, he would go to the school he rented from Tyrannus and teach from 11 until 4. And Paul didn't get off duty at 4 p.m. either. Because after teaching, he ministered from house to house well into the evening hours. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, he said to the Ephesian elders, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And Paul literally worked day and night. But he was committed to the cause of Christ. He was committed with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this also says something for the tremendous commitment of the believers there. I mean, can you imagine sacrificing sleep for a five-hour sermon in the heat of the day without air conditioning? A five-hour sermon. That's dedication, isn't it? 
You think they were hungry to, to hear what Paul had to say? Absolutely they were. They were. And you know, I often wonder to myself how difficult it is for some people today to manage to get out even for an hour and a half to two hours once a week. They were meeting for five hours daily, giving up sleep to do it in the heat of the day, in uncomfortable circumstances. And yet people today can't even make it out for an hour and a half or two hours once a week. I mean, what has happened to the church? What has happened to the church? You want to know why Ephesus was the strong church that it was? And as we'll see, it was a very strong church. You know why? Because the people had a hunger for the Lord and a hunger to learn God's word, and Paul saturated those precious believers with the word of God. That's why. Paul was totally committed, and it was evident in the way that he lived and in the way that he served. He labored night and day. We read now in verse 10. And this continued for two years. Now, this is the length of time Paul taught in the school of Tyrannus, not the total length of his ministry there, which was three years. So this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, I mean, notice this, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul preached the gospel, people were saved, they were disciples, they were taught the word of God, and they went back out into the communities where they lived and worked and played, and they spread the gospel themselves. That was Paul's method of evangelism. And it was extremely effective. Why? Because it's biblical. How effective was it? Well, it resulted in the whole province of Asia, the area around modern-day Turkey, being evangelized. It was during this time that the churches in Colossae and Hierapolis were established, and possibly some of the seven churches named in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So you want to know what the most effective way to evangelize is? You preach and teach the word of God. You make disciples and they'll reproduce because that's what healthy sheep do. They come together to be equipped to learn, to be better able to serve the Lord and then they go back out into the mission field where they live and where they work and where they play. And as they're in all of those places, they're, they're living out the gospel but they're not silent about it either. They're sharing the gospel as God gives opportunity. They're, they're inviting people to come and to hear the word of God. Just, let me ask you something. When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone you work with or recreate with and or invited them to church? It's what healthy sheep do. Spiritually reproducing Christians are the heart of any successful method of evangelism. And without ever leaving Ephesus, as far as we know, Paul, through his converts, evangelized the entire province of Asia. 
And the kingdom of darkness, which had such a stronghold in Ephesus, was effectively being assaulted by the Apostle Paul's relentless proclamation of the gospel and his preaching of the truth. I mean, what was accomplished in, in those two years is absolutely amazing. The gospel made great advances. And it was also accompanied by miracles that God worked through Paul. So let's look now at the unusual miracles in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11 we read, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And so God was doing extraordinary miracles. Literally, it means miracles not of an ordinary kind. So very unusual miracles. They were extraordinary and unusual even for an apostle. They were uncommon miracles that were not usually seen and performed. Some of these miracles were done directly by God through the hands of Paul, as verse 11 says. Others were done indirectly. I mean, God, in a way, and for reasons known only to himself, healed people through articles of Paul's clothing. Look at verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, Paul's skin, were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's pretty unusual, wouldn't you say? And these handkerchiefs were, were not handkerchiefs that we would envision today. No, they were actually the cloths that, that Paul used to wipe away the sweat while working. I mean, they were like sweat rags, often tied around his head like a sweatband. And the apron would have been a workman's apron. It was the apron Paul wore when making tents and, and working with leather. So it was a, a, a dusty, dirty, sweaty apron. And the scene here is that... Uh, is Paul working in the tent-making shop, sweating and, and wiping his face with the handkerchiefs and, and often having to change his apron. And as he discarded these items, people evidently were borrowing them and applying them to their sick family and friends. And God, in his tender mercies and compassion, healed them. I mean, Paul certainly didn't heal them. And the healing power was not in the sweat rags or the apron. The healing was done by God. Well, why did God perform these unusual miracles by healing people in this way? Of course, we don't know the mind of God, but we can only speculate. But first of all, probably to prove to the people that the God Paul priest was the true God. Second, to authenticate Paul's message to confirm to the people of Ephesus that he was from God so they would listen to the message of salvation he preached. And third, God may have done these unusual miracles because Ephesus was a hotbed. It was a center for the occult, including all forms of spiritism, magic, superstition, and the black arts. Being a God of incredible patience and grace it seems that he met these people on their own level. He, he condescended to show the Ephesians his sovereign power in a way that would get their attention and draw them to the Savior. It was just God's merciful and gracious accommodation to the mentality of these people. But the fact still remains, we don't really know why God chose to do these unusual miracles. This is one of those things that we'll have to ask him about when we get to heaven. I mean, it's a mystery to us. 
And we have to remember that these were unusual miracles that God chose to do. And there is absolutely no evidence to show that anyone has been or is healed in this way since. We have to keep in mind that Luke is merely describing historical events. He is not prescribing an activity that people should seek to imitate today. Yet there are charlatans today peddling their wares within the body of Christ, making merchandise of the Word of God, you know, as if they have the power to heal people in unique and unusual ways. And so, you know, for a certain amount of money, they'll send you a a prayer shawl or a prayer cloth or a special handkerchief a number of years ago. I read about a man who offered to send people a specially blessed handkerchief that had been dipped in the Jordan River, which, he said, if prayerfully applied, would bring healing. And all of this only for a cost of $15 plus shipping and handling. As one man said, no true Christian ever denies the Lord's ability to heal. The charlatans who resort to trickery are a disgrace to the cause of Christ, and I could not agree more. Paul was not walking around uh, selling his sweat rags or his aprons or or his socks to the local believers. They were borrowing them and applying them to the sick and to the demon-possessed, and God in his infinite mercy and grace chose to heal them in this way. And to seek to duplicate this kind of miracle is not only utterly foolish, it's absolutely unbiblical. So God confirmed Paul's ministry and and the preaching of the word with the unusual miracles, or with unusual miracles to convince the Ephesians that he was in fact from God. You know, something else I want to mention before we move on, it's important for us to understand that the miracles were not done first to attract people, which is what Uh, some are saying should be done today. We need the supernatural. We need miracles, signs and wonders to attract people. That's not what we see here. The miracles weren't first. No, rather the preaching of the word of God came first. God blessed his word. And then the miracles followed, uh, in this case, through Paul as God authenticated the message of his word. And of course, whenever God's people begin to minister in truth, Satan always sends his counterfeits to oppose the truth. And now in verses 13 to 16, we see there were some imposters in Ephesus. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of but by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I, I mean, I can just see them doing that. Some of your translations may say vagabond Jews or wandering Jews. And the idea is that these Jewish men travel throughout the country making a living by performing exorcisms. And no doubt it was a lucrative business in and around Ephesus, which, which was just such a demonic place. And this was a common practice in those days by Jewish priests. It it was an acknowledged spiritual trade. And the best exorcists were thought to know the names 
of the most powerful demon. And it was also commonly believed that the Jewish priests had access to the secret name of the God of Israel and its pronunciation, and so they had special power over the spirit world. So it was very natural then for these renegade Jewish exorcists to add Jesus' name to their long list of incantations. And so apparently what happened, these men had seen Paul cast out demons in the name of Jesus, and so they thought, hey, we'll capitalize on this, and we'll use the name of Jesus ourselves. Verse 14 tells us seven sons of, Jew, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So the seven sons of Sceva thought that they would make an easy buck by performing another quick exorcism, only this time they were going to use Jesus' name. But God had other plans. God was not going to stand by and see the name of his son prostituted by these imposters who merely wanted to make money by posing as his servants. So they said to the demon, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon answered them back. Look at verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But who are you? I think this is hilarious. Who are you? The word know that the demon uses means to know by experience, experience acquired. So the demon says, I most certainly know Jesus Christ. Of course he did. He had been a holy angel before the fall. He knew who Jesus was and is. In Luke 4.34, the demons acknowledged Jesus as the Holy One of God. So the demon said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. The word recognize means to know by prolonged attention. So this demon had been watching and and studying the Apostle Paul. He knew who Paul was. He knew what Paul had been doing. He knew that Paul was a servant of the Holy One of God. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, But then the demon looked at these men and said, but who are you? And at that moment, I think the seven brothers probably looked at each other and said, "Uh uh-oh. And after that, they probably didn't remember much. Look at verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered or subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, the demon-possessed man jumped on these guys and just thoroughly beat them. I mean, he just turned them every which way but loose. I mean, he gave them such a thrashing, he even tore off their clothes. And then finally they were able to get out of the house, only now they were naked and wounded and running for their very lives. And as one man commented, if when the fight started you were wearing pants, and when it was over you were no longer wearing pants, you lost. (laughs) They lost, big time. I mean, what a sight that must have been. I mean, picture it, seven naked guys beat to a pulp running down the road. And, And you wonder if the demon didn't chase them away just to scare them. What's the point of all of this? Well, if the exorcism had succeeded, 
it would have discredited the name of Christ. It would have discredited Christianity and Paul. But primarily, it would have discredited the name of Christ. And God was not going to allow any counterfeits or imposters to discredit the name of his dear son by using it for sordid gain. Instead, he saw to it that they received a good beating and he used it to provide an unforgettable example. And all of this had a great impact on the city. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So this had a tremendous impact on the city of Ephesus. We see, first of all, that fear fell upon them all. Well, certainly it did. And the fear of God struck men's hearts, and they were gripped with a sense of awe and and reverence and, and God's power. And there was power, soul-saving, demon-conquering, life-transforming power in the name of Jesus, but it was no name to use flippantly or to take lightly. So fear fell upon Ephesus, the, the same kind of fear that fell upon Jerusalem when Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God for lying to the Holy Spirit about their giving. And we're told that the people extolled or, or they magnified the name of Jesus because of it. After the seven sons of Sceva failed in their attempt to exercise this demon, both Jews and Greeks began revering Jesus' name and, and esteeming him all the more. And secondly, we see that God used this to bring about conviction of sin, which brought about changes in the lives of some believers. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. So some believers who didn't know any better because of their, they were just new believers, they became sensitized to their sin to such a degree that they, they began to confess their hidden sins and practices to one another. And some of them realized for the first time that faith in Jesus and participation in, in uh, different things, perhaps even magic and the occult, were completely incompatible. And they came to realize that they could not serve Jesus and still cling to sin. They, they couldn't keep one foot in the church and, and one in the world. God convicted them of their sin and they confessed and turned from it. And these believers came to understand what they owed to Christ was to lay it all on the line. Because with Christ, it's all or nothing. And they came to realize that anything in their lives that was holding them back or causing them to have a divided heart toward God and the things of God, they needed to get rid of, and they did. And these Ephesian believers had a new affection. They had a, a new love for Jesus. Let me ask you, is there, is there something like that in your life? Perhaps something you're hanging on to and you don't want to give it up, but you know that is absolutely inconsistent with your walk with Christ. 
I mean, if so, you need to get rid of it. If there's something like that in your life, you need to get rid of it right now. And perhaps God is speaking to your heart right now about some personal goal, some entertainment, some possession, some hidden sin, something you're hanging on to that, that's holding you back, keeping you from enjoying that relationship with Christ and the things of God, and it's causing you to have a divided heart. Well, if that's the case, and you must respond to the Lord with, yes, Lord. I'll get rid of it. I'll give it up. I'll turn from whatever it is. I'll turn from whatever it is that, that's holding me back and, and ripping me off from living in the fullness of all that you have for me. You can't serve two masters. You can't live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church. Some believers confessed and, and turned from their hidden sins. There, there were also unbelievers, and there's some debate as to whether those spoken of in verse 19 are unbelievers or these are the same believers. It, it, it's, it's hard to determine. But it would appear that they're unbelievers who were saved. Look at verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so many who were involved in, in the occult and black magic were saved, and, and the genuineness of their repentance was demonstrated by them bringing their magic books and burning them in the sight of everyone. They made a complete break with the past. They, they abandoned their old lifestyle to follow Christ. And we're told the amount of the books that were burned totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. I mean, I know we, we, we think of that, yeah, well, that's, that's a lot, but I don't think we realize how much that really was in that day. One piece of silver was one day's wages. So 50 pieces of silver was 50,000 days' wages or 137 years' worth of wages for a common laborer. That's an astounding sum of money, which indicates just how widespread the practice of magic was in Ephesus. And these people truly did count the cost of following Jesus Christ. And they were willing to break with their old life, abandon their old lifestyle, and to deny themselves, pick up their crosses, and follow Christ. And I wonder what would be burned today if the Spirit of God brought this kind of conviction upon those in the church. What would be burned? There would probably be some magazines taken out of desk drawers, some novels taken off the shelf. There would probably be some DVDs burned, some TV channels and Internet sites blocked. There would probably be some CDs burned and People would ask others to pray for them that they'd be set free from whatever it is that was dragging them down and keeping them from the things of God. And what a cleaning out there would be in many Christian homes and many would come to Christ for forgiveness of sin. I mean, what would happen if, if that occurred? What would happen if 
if we really put Christ first in our lives. Same thing that happened in Ephesus. And we read what that was in verse 20. Notice. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Prevailed mightily. The word of the Lord not only continued to increase or spread to other areas, it, it prevailed mightily, which means it grew in power and it, and it triumphed. And it was at this point that the people of Asia not only heard the word of God, but also believed it and began to follow Christ. And this awakening in Ephesus began and, and continued with the word of God being proclaimed. And later, when Paul reflected on his ministry in Ephesus, he emphasized how his primary task there involved expounding the Scriptures to everyone. And you'll notice Luke, here in Acts, brackets verses 10 to 20 with references to the Word of the Lord. In verse 10, a transitional verse, he says, This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And then now in verse 20, a summary verse, he says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This bracket highlights the major emphasis of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. It wasn't miracles. It was the word of the Lord. And all of this points to the fact that what turned Ephesus upside down was the gospel. It was the word of God. It was the message that Paul preached. Yes, the miracles confirmed the validity of Paul's message, displayed the awesome sovereign power of Christ over all other powers, and and they certainly were indeed impressive. But let's not lose sight of the fact that what was primary, and that is the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word. Repeatedly in the book of Acts, Luke reports on how the early church impacted the nations. It was through the word of the Lord. And so if you want to know how lives and cities can be changed, you want to know how the affections of idolaters can, can be changed, the word of God is the key. We must preach the word of the living God, preach the word of Christ. I mean, just read Acts 19 and 20. The gospel changed lives then and it does so today. I mean, God has always used the preaching of the word to stimulate spiritual awakening. I mean, intense preaching of the Christ-exalting scriptures transformed the city of Ephesus, and it can transform our nation today. And that is, a, that is the only hope for our nation. So we should let this passage increase our confidence in the transforming power of God's word. Because faith really does come by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Amen? Paul had quite a ministry in Ephesus. He was able to share the gospel with some disciples of John the Baptist, see them trust Christ. He preached the word of God night and day, and the people were built up and equipped, and they went out all over the province of Asia sharing the gospel, and churches were planted. 
God did some unusual miracles through Paul and dealt with some imposters who tried to use the name of Jesus for personal gain. And as a result, the fear of the Lord fell upon the people and Christians began to confess their hidden sins and unbelievers came to faith in Christ. It all had a great impact on the city of Ephesus and that entire region for Jesus Christ. In fact, it had such an impact. It had such an impact there in Ephesus that it began to affect the economy. Specifically, the bank accounts of many of the pagan businessmen. And so they caused a riot in the city. And Lord willing, we'll learn about that next week. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Grow.